Every week, Denver Zone Real Nerds Podcast sees a new movie and we podcast our experience to the world. I think sometimes we're funny. Yeah, sometimes when I'm talking, not when you're talking, not when you're talking. Oh, you know, it might help if you told them that we're on iTunes or on Stitcher so they could find a place where you can actually listen to us. Oh, okay, Brad. We're also on Twitter, at Real Nerds, and we have an Instagram account. Boom. Commercial, Brad. Cut. Paste. Upload. We like to have fun. Sure. I like fun. James, you're very bad at improv. RealNerdsPodcast.com. You have all made it to the dance. You have all made it, made it, made it. Coming to you from the X Access, it's John of All Trades with your host, John X. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the John of All Trades podcast, episode 140. I'm your host, John X. Thank you for joining us. Glad to have you back once again. And it is good to be back. It has been too long. I have been traveling. I have had a lot going on. So getting back into the show is huge. I'm so happy to be here. And I'm happy to introduce this week's guest. His name is Alan Brooks. And I met him at John Wenzel's birthday party. Now, John Wenzel was on this show. He is a writer for the Denver Post. He's also a pop culture critic. He's done a number of things. He wrote about me two years ago, maybe even three years ago at this point, for a Denver Post article about podcasting. That's how I got hooked up with These Things Matter and Bree Davies, and that was just a tremendous experience. I call it the first time this episode leveled up. So I trust John because he's got a great network of folks, of creative professionals, of just cool people in this city, and Alan is among them. Now, Alan is the creator of a comic book, of a hardcover graphic novel called The Burning Metronome which has just taken off for him. It's done great things. You can get links to it. You can find out more about it on the John of All Trades companion blog piece that goes with this episode. You can find that at johnofalltrades.us. That's J-O-N of alltrades.us. Alan is also the host of a podcast called Motherfucker in a Cape, which is just about the most fun name of a show I have ever heard, and it's a delight to say. Putting profanity right up front, that's how I like to set the tone of the John of All Trades podcast. So Alan and I sat down. We talked about nerd culture. We talked about geek culture. He was going to cons in Atlanta when he was like 10 years old. And the way he tells it, it always makes me laugh. He's like this 10-year-old black kid. It's him and a bunch of white dudes in their 40s. He couldn't even get black Vulcan ears. He wanted to be a Vulcan. I mean, who didn't? Vulcans were cool. Spock was awesome. And so we talk about the evolution of nerd culture because it's everywhere now. Nerd culture is mainstream. The biggest movies of the year are almost always, without question, comic book movies. How's he feel about it? And Alan is one of my favorite people I've talked to in some time. He's very thoughtful, very insightful. He seems to have a drive to create things that matter, things that make a difference in terms of our world. You know, providing viewpoints and commentary that we don't always get. And he does it in an interesting way, always in the service of a really good story which is why I think the burning metronome has taken off the way it has. He tells the story of asking for a certain amount of money on Kickstarter, and it's surpassing that by leaps and bounds. And after talking to him, it's not hard to understand why, and why he's earned the press and the acclaim that he has in terms of this project. Additionally, since he is self-employed, and since he is a practicing creative, he doesn't have a day job. He supports himself entirely on his artistic and creative endeavors. How does he do that? 
right? Because that's very enviable. People hear that and they go, wow, that's fantastic. You know, I don't have to go to this job eight or 10 hours a day that I hate. And it's not as glamorous. And that's a theme that runs through this podcast. It's not nearly as glamorous as it seems. It's a lot of work. You have to put in the time. You have to be disciplined. You have to put pen to paper or fingers to keyboard, however you want to say it. That cliche may need some updating. But as a fellow entrepreneur and as someone who aspires to do nothing but creative stuff with his day, it was great to connect with him and we share notes and we talk about how we've kind of become successful in that regard. So just a fantastic episode. What a great dude. Like I said, check out the companion blog piece, johnofalltrades.us for all the links to Alan's stuff. You can follow him on Twitter. You can check out the Burning Metronome on Facebook. You can see Alan's Tumblr page. It's all right there. Additionally, we're available on Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher. So great ways to download the John of All Trades podcast. They come right to your listening device. Just hit that subscribe button. They'll come directly to you. Okay, those are a couple of plugs. We're going to get to this week's episode. Number 140 is Alan Brooks, the creator of The Burning Metronome, host of the Motherfucker in a Cape podcast, practicing creative professional. His episode starts right now. Yeah, usually on the weekend I've expended uh, social energy. Right. You know, I was talking about being an introvert. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So a lot of it is uh, just being away from people. And also I've had insomnia since I was born. Like bad? Yeah, like it's, I stopped going to sleepovers when I, when I was a kid because everybody would just go to sleep and I'd be sitting there and nothing's ever worked to help it. Really? Yeah, so usually on a Monday I'm getting up at like noon. How much do you sleep in a night then? Varies, <laughs> but even when I go to sleep, it's not that deep. Okay. You know, sometimes it'll be like I fall asleep at 2 a.m. even if I've been laying down since 8 p.m. So, like, for six hours, you're you're laying there trying to... Yeah. Wow. It's really terrible in the days before the internet was ubiquitous. You know? <laughs> right. Because I'd be sitting in a dark board and lonely because everybody's asleep. I actually cultivated... In the 90s, I cultivated... I was in Atlanta, and I cultivated right. friends on the West Coast just so I could have people to talk to. <laughs> <laughs> like, on the phone? Yeah. I would call them at, like, 9 and, you know... I mean, call them at midnight my time, and it would yeah. be 9 for them. And so we could have cool conversations. Jeez, man, that uh, sounds rough. Uh, does that facilitate or foster any creativity, or is that a myth? Uh, it depends on how tired I am. Okay. Right? So, like, because uh, it's not even like my mind's racing. Like, I'm thinking about nothing. I'm completely relaxed but can't sleep. Yuck. Yeah, right. Yuck is the right thing. <laughs> but So, uh, when I'm not too tired, I can get a lot done. Like, I can do some writing, do some reading, you know. But sometimes I'm so tired that... I can't do anything. Like, I'm right. too tired to read, and I'm just laying there for hours, and it's terrible. And it also means that it, the times when it's worse, because uh, sometimes it'll be, like, at least three or four times a year, I'll go a couple of days without sleeping, and that's terrible. But what it means is that when I can't go to sleep that night, the next day is ruined, too. Sure, yeah. So there's a super drop in product productivity. Yeah. Well, and I read an interview with you, and I want to say it was in the Westward, hmm. where... You don't have like a conventional day job. Right? Oh yeah, that's so, right. I mean, you you hustle enough to where you make enough money to sustain yourself on your creative endeavors, which not a lot of people can say. Uh, so, Alan Brooks is here in my basement, <laughs> and uh, 
You are the author and creator of The Burning Metronome. That's right. And host of Motherfucker in a Cape. Yep. Right? It's fun to say, isn't it? It's great. (laughs) I was looking forward to saying that uh, as soon as we got started here. But tell me a little bit about how you've managed to avoid sort of doing a day job and like how, you know, how you can live off your creative endeavors, because I think that's something that a lot of people would be very envious of. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't easy. I mean, cause I did day jobs for years right. that sucked my soul. Right. What kinds of things? Uh, my first job out of college, I produced a TV show for a televangelist. Okay. <laughs> that was pretty terrible. Fantastic. Uh, I did it for about five years. What was your major in college? And where'd Advertising. you Advertising. Oh, cool. And I went to uh, Simon's Rock College. It's in Massachusetts. Okay. Uh, I went because they accepted me early. Right. Uh, so I went when I was 16. Wow. Graduated when I was 19. So then I did the televangelist thing. And then I did that for way longer than I should have, but it was I think it's because I was so young. Right. I, I didn't realize that I had other options. <laughs> yeah, sometimes you just don't know. Yeah. Then I did uh, graphic design for a nonprofit. Then I realized that it frustrated me to do art for other people, right? Uh, like corporate art kind of stuff. Well, because the product is never as good. I work yeah. with a lot of graphic designers, and I the way I often have to talk to them is by saying, "I know these edits I'm going to give you are going <laughs> to make this artistically worse." <laughs> But this is what needs to happen. It's good that you're aware of it, yeah. Yeah, and it, it's it's a way to sort of establish trust with graphic designers. It's yeah. Like, look, I know this is going to look shitty. Yeah. But this is what the client wants, and we're never going to get through something that is artistically better. Yeah, I think that's key, man. I, I, like, So I, at this point, I might have been like 26 or so, but I realized, okay, well, it is their right. They're paying me for this thing. Right. But it hurts me to destroy this beautiful thing I created. <laughs> Right. So I was like, so that's obviously my problem. So I need to figure out something different. Yeah. So I moved into more like, uh, uh, I moved into like corporate training and that's about when I moved to Denver. Okay. And, uh, so I figured if I did something that involved no art, I could do art in my real life, Yeah. you know, and not be frustrated. For sure. Well, it's good that you recognize that too. Yeah. Because it's easy to project that. Oh yeah. Something I've told a lot on this show is the fact that I've had a problem with every boss I've ever had, mm-hmm. except one. <laughs> I'm like, you know what? It wasn't that that one was so amazing. Although yeah. he was great and we got along terrifically. It, and it it wasn't that everyone else was so shitty. The problem is probably me. That uh, reminds me of a Mark Twain quote, which I'll paraphrase. But basically he said uh, it amazed him how much smarter his father got uh, from when he was a teenager. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Yeah, which is hilarious. But Okay, so yeah, the corporate training thing, and then uh, I got tired of that, so I started an insurance agency, and I did that for a few years. How was that? Uh, it was good in that I worked for myself. It sure. was hard in that it was sales, sales for something I fundamentally didn't care about. <laughs> you know? Get out of here. All right. <laughs> uh, and th- so it was uh, like PNC, like car and house insurance. Then I moved into health insurance, and that was hard because when you sell it to people, they want to nickel and dime you, right? So right. they'll be like, take this off. I don't need this. And you say, well, if you take this off, something happens. You're not going to have X. Right. Then when something happens, they want to call me and be mad that they don't have X. Oh, jeez. You know? And I, although intellectually I knew it was their fault, uh, it was emotionally hard for me to have people angry at me for something that I don't really care about. <laughs> well, yeah. And it's it's hard because in terms of customer service, you can't point out that they're wrong. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a lot of times like fighting with a partner. Yeah. It's like, look, I know you're wrong, but we're doing this thing here. And there's there's a, 
either spoken or unspoken power dynamic mm-hmm. to which I can't disagree with you in that way. Yeah. And I mean, that's in a lot of ways intellectually frustrating too. Yeah. Yeah. So that was just really hard for me. Uh, but the way that I got to uh, being able to be full-time artist is I realized, okay, if I diversify, cause I make a little money from a variety of things. Mm-hmm. So the way I make a living now is uh, a little revenue from the podcast that I host, uh, just, you know, ad revenue and then um, comic book writing commissions. For example, the pop culture classroom hired me to write children's stories using their mascots, children's comic books. Oh, cool. Yeah. And, and then uh, my own comic book. And then the third thing is uh, music. I rap with the jazz band and I do a few gigs a month. Nice. And uh, between those three things, I make a meager artist living. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I mean, compared to the alternative. Yeah. Uh, I would you say it's much more fulfilling then? Definitely, my soul is much, much more at peace. You know, like sure. I certainly had to reduce my expenses. I, I live with a whole bunch of messy dudes, that kind of thing. <laughs> right. You know, but like uh, it, it's better than you know spending eight to ten hours a day at a place that makes me feel terrible. No kidding, man. I have clients, and you know, like what you're describing. Some gigs are obviously going to be better than others. Yeah. And since I started working for myself, like some of the work that I do, especially like I, I do professional communications, mm-hmm. so like PR media, that kind of thing. So much of it is just fucking ditch digging hmm. and it's, it's hard work. And people always ask me, do you work more hours than when you were in corporate? And yeah. I said, I don't think so, but I definitely work harder. <laughs> like my hours are much more intense. Yeah. So, yeah, it's interesting. Well, and also I would say with this working for myself, I can uh, actually adjust to my hours because with those old jobs, I had to try to be someplace at 8 or 10 a.m. <laughs> and like I would just be a zombie there. Oh, with know. with insomnia yeah, too, I'm sure. Right. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, I would be a zombie there for Good hours. Lord. Yeah. And, you know, like people would ask me things in the morning. I was just be like, you know. <laughs> right. But uh, now, like, so really I probably usually wake up around 11 and I get working like noon or 1. And then I work till like eight and then I try to settle down. And that's usually like my Monday to Friday. Okay. And I usually try to go, uh, mostly it's writing. I mean, of course there are things like taxes or paying bills or whatever, you know, like those things. Yeah, the administrative stuff. Right. Exactly. Uh, you know, email correspondence, et cetera. But yeah. mostly I try to go either to the library or, uh, the bookstore mutiny that I record my podcast at. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And I'll just put in headphones and put in a full shift and write. Yeah. <laughs> I had a writing project. It was for this corporate thing. Uh-huh. And at, you, everyone's eyes will roll back in their head if I start describing it. But <laughs> I was basically you writing. Mean in ecstasy? <laughs> <laughs> totally. <laughs> People's heads will explode with how excited they are over right. this writing project that I had. But uh, I was at Hooked on Colfax. Okay. And I sat down there and basically banged it out over the course of like six or seven hours. Wow. Same deal, headphones. Yeah. And, uh, I used to wonder, I used to go into places like that. I'm like, how do people work in here? Hmm. And when you're not going to an office, it's like, I don't even need to talk to people. But the fact that there are people around, it's just kind of helpful. Yeah. I don't know what it is. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, when you're at home, uh, you you try to work and focus, but you'll be like, oh, I need to do laundry. (laughs) Or, you know, like, oh, that needs to be vacuumed. And then you'll just start, you'll get pulled away. Yeah. Uh, And it's interesting with anything that's creative. First of all, people approach it like you don't have to work it like a job, like you have to wait for the muse to hit you, one. Right. And then also the people around you, if you let them, will be like, oh, you're just writing. You can just do that later. Mm-hmm. But you have to protect that time. Yeah. Because otherwise you never get finished. You never get paid if you can't finish. No, you're right. 
I mean, to, to your point though, I like to give the creative process as wide a berth as possible. Mm-hmm. So I almost have to be Zen like about when the muse strikes, mm-hmm. you know, because it's unpredictable. Yeah. I mean, you can, you can kind of create an environment where it's like, okay, this is my time dedicated to work. And especially now that I have kids, I'm much better about that. Yeah. But still, there will be times where nothing's coming, mm-hmm. and you almost have to like jujitsu your schedule a little bit, mm-hmm. you know. And it's like, okay, I'm gonna switch gears and do some admin stuff right now. Yeah, like I because it's just not coming. Yeah, I think that's a key thing. Uh, if you have that dedicated time for working, then if the muse isn't there, you can do the administrative stuff. Right. But I also feel like, uh, in many ways, at least for me, uh, the muse is the idea. Right. Right. So that can strike at any time. That can be at six in the morning when I'm mad the sun is rising and I can't go to sleep, you know? Yeah. Or it could be like while I'm in a meeting. And when that happens, I just make notes on my phone because the, once the idea is there, there's work that has to be done after it. And that yeah. doesn't involve the muse really. Right. No, that's a good point. It's like, I have the idea and now I have to execute it. I have to structure this story yeah. and build it and, you know, like layer it and all that kind of stuff. And so that is what happens during those work hours. Right. It uh, it reminds me, I had a friend who, when I was doing a writing gig, uh, I, I had my own website, and he goes, I want to write for you. I go, show me what you've written. Yeah. He goes, I got a ton of ideas, man. Uh, nah. And I go, <laughs> okay, great. You got to put those on paper. I got to see what, like, yeah. give me some work product here, man, because yeah. everyone's got ideas. And the difference between people who are practicing creatives mm. and everyone else is they actually get it down and get it out there. It's so real, man. I, there's this thing where... Uh, as a, a musician or an artist, like visual artist or a writer, people are constantly coming up with their ideas, right? Like, right. Oh, I got an idea for a book. I just need somebody to write it. As if the writing is the easy part, right? <laughs> right. Like everybody has fucking ideas, right? And, and it's not to be harsh. I mean, I posted something where I was like, your ideas don't mean shit, right? Yeah. And the, the point of that was that it's good that you have an idea, but the idea is not the work. The work is actually realizing that idea and making it into something. And if you can do that, you're ahead of 80% of the other oh, creative people. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. Well, oh, absolutely. And, I mean, likening it back to what I do, there are people who, who come up with a great, like, public outreach plan. Yeah. And it's like, okay, now you got to go execute the shit. Yeah. And they're like, eh, I'm not really into that side. <laughs> let's pass that on to somebody. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, let's, uh, let's subcontract that. Right. <laughs> but... Uh, yeah, it's crazy. Like I've I've started three websites now, uh, and this podcast, and it's like okay, I got the idea for it, but it's like okay now, and then the work comes. I got to come up with the name. I got to yeah. come up with the logo. I got to produce the intro, produce the outro. Yeah, like there's there's tasks, right? And life is tasks. Yep. And uh, you're right. Your idea doesn't mean shit. Yeah. Until you start doing it. Yeah, and it's so hard, man. Because I mean, like I went to like. Uh... You know, I'll be at conventions. I was at AnomalyCon a couple of years ago, which is a steampunk convention that happens down in DTC. Wow. Yeah. And, uh, How well attended is that? Cause Steve- <laughs> I think it's, uh, it was, this year might have been the last year, but it went for six, and they had a few hundred people who would go. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And Which was interesting to me because I'm not a steampunk person, but I was invited to speak there and have a table. Oh, cool. Yeah. Right. And, did, uh, did you do the cosplay? No. <laughs> <laughs> I usually don't when I'm doing uh, – when I'm – Selling my book. Oh, of course. People yeah. have to sort of connect with me as a person, that kind of thing. Right. But uh, it was cool. So I did uh, a panel on writing. And so there were about mm, 35 people in there. And so, like, uh, you know, I say, okay, who's a writer? And they all raised their hands. 
and I say, okay, who has something they finish? And like maybe eight hands yeah. are up, right? So they're asking questions, and I mean they're they're good questions, right? Like I think when it comes to art, there are two major things that confuse people. One, because it's a passion, we feel like it should not have any structure, mm-hmm. right? So we feel like structure is an imposition. But like if I were going to make like a car, and I was like, I'm going to make a new car. I'm going to make a car like nobody's ever seen. Right. I'm not going to ignore it. I'm not going to reinvent wheels, right? Yeah. I'm going to use wheels. There's a structure to the car. I'm going to use that structure and put my new idea on it. And the same is true for painting, for drawing, for writing, for, you know, so many things in art. And if you learn the structure, then you can subvert it if you need to. Oh, yeah. But, like, you know, just the resistance to structure. So that's one. But the other is people feel like uh, it's got to be perfect before they finish it. Oh, yeah. Fuck that. Right. And it's never it's never going to be perfect to you. No. Right. So uh, I'm saying this, and one guy who's probably in his 60s, he raised his hand, and he was like, so if I put it out into the world, I can't take it back, <laughs> right? And I felt, I felt good that he felt comfortable enough to ask or to say that. Right? That's a very vulnerable yeah, exactly. thing to put out right. there. And I was like, you know what? That's true, man. But you kind of have to get over that. Now, yeah. if you're writing or creating just for yourself, then you don't have to get over it. No. But if you want it to be out in the world, then at some point you have to let it go. <laughs> There's a friend of mine who struggled with that for years like we grew up together and he uh we were teenagers and he would always be like i gotta go right i gotta go right gotta go right he and i had been friends since i was like 11 and i never got to read any of his writing till i was like 37 oh jesus yeah so like you know and he's realized it now but he read something and he told me basically the idea was if you have two painters one spends a year working on a painting the other one does a painting a day for a year Mm -hmm. who's going to be better at the end Mm -hmm. of that year the one who does you know painting a day yeah and it's so true with everything. Like you get this power up by finishing that you would not get any other way. You know, you keep struggling with these same things. It's just not going to happen. You have to be able to finish. Dude, you're, you're spot on with that. And I think about when I started the crew Jones society with my friend Jason hmm. and we decided we were going to write every day. Oh, nice. And I was, we were writing probably like 5,000. I was writing personally somewhere between 3,000 and 8,000 words a week, which is a ton. Yeah. And you basically sacrifice yeah. your 20s, you know, right? because we're doing this around the margins, too. Like, we yeah. both had day jobs. And I look back on some of those pieces, I'm like, that was shit. <laughs> but I'm really glad that I had that deadline. I'm like, you know what? And I say this a lot on this show, too. Lauren Michaels says, Saturday Night Live does not go on because it's ready. Huh. It goes on because it's 1135 on Saturday. Nice. And so, yeah. good, bad, or indifferent, we got a show to do. Yeah. And if you can be disciplined enough to be like, look, even if you even if you're making up imaginary de- deadlines, you will be so much better for it. Yeah, and that's exactly what you're describing. No, yeah, that's, yeah, and and then there's some people who will never like, just will never do it, right? Yeah, and that's uh, fine. That's yeah, our prerogative, exactly. And I just have to learn how to identify those people so that I don't <laughs> waste my time with them, right? You know, and that's been like the lesson of like the last few years for me to like really zone in because people have a lot of intentions, uh, so. Right after I gave, I was in that writing panel, there was a woman who was in it. And then I went back to my table with my books and she came by and she was uh, telling me about this story she was working on. And so she wanted to get really into it. Like, you know, had me super involved, you know? And yeah. So I was like, oh, well, that that's cool. Write it. Yeah. And she's like, well, I have to do more research. And I was like, no, I mean, you know, you just, <laughs> you just have to write it. And she's like, well, first I need to get some business cards. <laughs> and that actually confused me. Right. I was like, you know, you can do that. 
right now on your phone, Vistaprint. We could do it right now, you know? Yeah. But what I realized is, oh, she's just throwing up excuses, not even to me, to her, to <laughs> right. herself, you know? And they're not even rational excuses. Like, she, you know, if she examined them, but she's afraid to write. Yep. And nobody can help you with that. You got to figure it out. Yeah, she's throwing up the roadblocks for herself and basically almost uh, transferring them onto you. Yeah. Which is odd. I got to get some business cards. What is that? <laughs> uh, no, you don't. Right. You need a product first. <laughs> business card says writer. <laughs> now I'm real. <laughs> See, no, I'm a writer. Look at this. Right. <laughs> I wrote this business card. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, but uh, I, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because this is well-worn territory for you. Mm. But you've talked... Uh, at length, and we met for the first time just a few weeks ago yeah. at John Wenzel's birthday party, which yep. was great. It's always cool because Wenzel was on this show, and he's terrific. Yeah, he's he was one, on mine too. <laughs> that's yeah. that's awesome. He's one of the best dudes. Yeah, you know? definitely. One of the things that you had talked about, and that is sort of part of the Alan Brooks mythology, mm-hmm. if you want to put it that way, is growing up being way into comics. And yeah. I mean, this was what, like in the eighties, yeah. that kind of thing. And, I mean, you're the only person there, right? Mm-hmm. Actually, you tell this story better than I do, so I'm going <laughs> to let you. Well, I say this at the beginning of my podcast, but basically I would go to these conventions when I was, like, 10 years old, and it would be, like, me and white dudes in their 40s, <laughs> right. right? Like, no other kids, like, no other people of color. And it was fine, but it was just uh, the convention. This is in Atlanta. The convention comics were not popular enough there to have their own convention. Okay. So it was like comic book slash Star Trek convention. Oh, yeah. And they didn't make black Vulcan ears. <laughs> I wanted to be a Vulcan. Damn it. Right? Sure. <laughs> so like, uh, you know, all of that, to see how much has grown and changed over the years has been pretty remarkable. Well, how did you get into it? If I mean, if if you're talking about you're the only person in your demographic. Yeah. In two different demographics. Yeah. How did you get into it? You know, my father bought me my first comic when I was five. He was a journalist. I mean, he's still a journalist. He just retired from USA Today a couple of years ago. Oh, wow. Yeah, but he uh, he wanted me to read. So okay. he specifically, he bought me The Flash. It's during the Carmine Infantino period for people who notice <laughs> such things. Yeah. And so that got me into it. And then uh, my parents divorced shortly after that. When I was around 10, my mom just saw in the paper that there was a comic book convention. She's like, is this something you'd be interested in? I was like, yeah. And she took me and dropped me off. Wow. Yeah, and it was great. And then I went every year. And then the friend that I mentioned uh, that was, like, lifelong, he started going with me. And so, like, that was, like, our thing. And even Denver Comic Con was last weekend. He flew in so that we could do that together. (laughs) You know, and I had a table there. And he did animation for a comic. It was was great, man. It was, like, the culmination of all our life's dreams. Wow, that's cool. Yeah. What was the reaction to the attendees? You know, it's mostly all white dudes in their 40s, right? There's this little black 10-year-old kid there. You know, uh, well, I think to some degree, perhaps I was oblivious to some of it. Because I think uh, I, like they would have a drawing contest. Mm-hmm. And they had like a kid's category. And I remember distinctly that I never entered into the kid's category. I always entered into the adult <laughs> category. Because it just it didn't even occur to me that I should do something different. Right. Uh, but I will say, uh, in general, people were pretty cool. Because I think especially back then the geek world was a refuge for people who felt, you know, outcast. Yeah. So everybody was pretty accepting and cool. This is like a weird side note, but there was this uh, married couple that I remember in the costume contest every year, she would be a Romulan, he would be a Klingon <laughs> and they would like do this whole scripted thing in the con- and do like a sword fight. I think they were like sword instructors or something in their real life. 
and they would do these sword fights every year and it was like <laughs> the coolest thing <laughs> you know and i have no idea who they were or anything like that i just remember seeing them every wow. year yeah was it a different sword fight every year yeah like they would have a different script and like yeah they were that's fantastic they were pretty serious yeah <laughs> wow um oh this is something funny i think when i was 12 i went to a convention at the omni which used to be in atlanta and uh yeah where the hawks play yeah yeah. And I would come in, I was trying to find it because, you know, it was just a big place and the convention, you know, they weren't like 100,000 people back then. Right. You know? Yeah. It was like 400 maybe. So I asked this guy, hey, are you part of the convention? Now I'm a 12 year old boy, right? Mm -hmm. My voice isn't even that deep yet. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So I'm like, hey, are you part of the convention? <laughs> and the guy's like, uh, yes. Do you need to see my badge? Like, I was security. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know whether that was a, a race thing or not, right. but it was an odd thing either way because he was grown as hell and I'm 12. And yeah. He, How tall are you at right, that point? Right. Like man, five feet? Maybe? Seriously. Yeah. And yeah. he was like, he was like nervous, <laughs> you know, that's too weird. Yeah. Maybe I should just told him to give me his badge. So I'd have to pay to get in. But. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Uh, one of the things that I was curious about with you in particular, because I, I was never really that much into comics. Mm -hmm. Like I went through a phase where I was sort of into like Justice League, you know, yeah. Superman, Batman. Uh, the fl it was funny you mentioned the Flash because the Flash was my favorite. Oh, okay, because I was slow as hell as a kid, huh. and like the fact that he was fast was so appealing to me. Nice. But my everything for me, all the mythology, all the all the superheroes, comic books, everything was professional wrestling to me. Huh. I grew up loving that. Yeah. But here was the thing. It was popular in the 80s, and I was too little a kid to really mm -hmm. recognize it then. And then the 90s, it was kind of dead. Late 90s, WCW, you know, NWO, Stone Cold Steve Austin, yeah. DX, all that, started getting popular again. Mm -hmm. And that was so disorienting for me because I spent a long time as a closeted wrestling fan. Huh. And all of a sudden, you know, people would start talking about how they were watching Raw or watching Nitro or whatever. And I'm like, what is happening here? Like, <laughs> the world is a weird place. Now, that's a long way of setting up. When you started going to these in the 80s, mm -hmm. comics not that popular. Yeah. Now, comic book culture is almost everything. Yeah. You know, it's like every franchise tentpole movie. Mm hmm and, you know, you've got every Tom, Dick, and Quasimodo out on the out on the street who knows at least something about, like, Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah. Which was a fairly obscure book. Definitely. Um, in terms of Marvel. But now it's one of the biggest movies in the entire world. It's true. Has that been strange to experience as someone who loved this for a long time and now it's, like, mainstream culture? Yeah, it has. I mean, I, I think uh, some old school geeks are sort of resented. I'm but, sure. Yeah, but I love it. I mean, it used to be super secret society. Like, it might be twice a year that I'd be out somewhere and hear somebody talk about, like, if they said Thor. Yeah. You know, yeah. I'd be like, yo, you're in the <laughs> comics? And then we would talk for, you know, because that's, that's how <laughs> right. rare it was, right? And even the, the friend that I mentioned, you know, I keep mentioning, like, the reason we were friends, we went to separate schools, but he was the only other person I knew who was in the comic books. Right. Right. My best friend was into wrestling. Ah, nice. Yeah. So there you go. I'm yeah, with it's you on that. Interesting. Like, I love it, though. I love seeing how it's proliferated. I love seeing how uh, it's diversified. I dropped out of reading comics in the 90s. I thought maybe I'd outgrown them, but now I go reread re 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 books from that time, and it's just comics kind of sucked, in my opinion, really? during that time. Like. Largely, yeah. What happened? Well, uh, so, you know, Image was created. Uh, that was six artists, I think, who left Marvel 
and started their own company. Okay. Image makes some of the best stuff now. Like, uh, right. But back then, they were artists. They weren't writers. So they created books with a lot of flash, uh, and a lot of them were sort of derivative of X-Men and the properties they'd been working on. Mm-hmm. And then they sold a lot, but they had very little substance. Oh, yeah, okay. And then Marvel and DC followed Image because DC, you know Image was doing so well. And so there was just a lot of, like, there was, like, a bad girl phase, you know, like, uh, scantily clad women who shoot up things. And uh, just, I mean, there were some really good comics during that time. But I think, oh, and then also the uh, speculative market uh, arose, which basically is, like, uh, they realized that some people collect comics for their value. Mm. So then every comic company started releasing, like, four four versions of every issue with a gold foil cover, oh, silver goodness. foil cover, different artists, you know, like that kind of thing. And it just, uh, it crashed. Like, Basically craven profiteering. Yeah. And uh, really, actually, the comics market hasn't recovered from hmm. that. You know, I mean, because I think back then comics were selling, uh, I think, in the millions, but but definitely a lot higher. Now, like, uh, twenty to 50000 is a good sales amount for a comic. Okay. Which is, you know, way different. But, yeah, oh, yeah. but basically they burned everybody out. You know. <laughs> and so I went I so I didn't go to many conventions and the first time I went back to a convention was maybe two thousand one. And then I saw like pretty girls there and I was like, What? <laughs> you know. <laughs> right. And uh so I, I was like so I saw one and I was like, Oh yeah, she needs to know me, you know. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So I went and talked to her and it turned out that uh her boyfriend was uh, you know, I know she had a boyfriend, but her boyfriend was uh this comic artist, David Mack who did this book called Kabuki and she was like the model for Kabuki and she gave me a few copies and it was cool, you know, and he was very nice, Yeah, yeah. you know? So yeah, that was like my <laughs> reintroduction to conventions. Rebirth. Yeah. That's awesome. What you're describing with comics reminds me, I was into baseball cards briefly uh-huh. and that whole market is dead too. Uh, I mean, it's, it's collapsed like over there on the window. Yeah. You can see that's, that's a basketball card on the right. That's Carl Malone's rookie card. Okay. And to the left is Ken Griffey Jr.'s rookie card. And the thing that I found out later was it's the wrong company of oh. his rookie card. The valuable one was made by Upper Deck. Oh, wow. That one's tops. And you're like, that Jesus sucks. Christ, who can like who yeah. has the bandwidth to keep up right. with that? So now I just have it there because I like it. And yeah. I don't know if it's worth anything, and I don't really care. Yeah. But uh, let's talk about your book because The Burning Metronome, mm-hmm. you just released it, right? Yep. How long ago did that come out? Uh, we premiered it at Denver Comic-Con. Okay, nice. Yeah. So just we're recording this like a week and a half after Denver Comic-Con yeah. wrapped. And what was the reception like? Uh, wonderful. It was really like it surprised me. Really? Yeah. I mean, uh, we released a, a first chapter and uh, that got me a lot of press in really uh, surprising ways, which is good. Like, you know, I was on Colorado Public Radio. Nice. Post, Denver Post, Westward. Were you on with like Ryan Warner? That kind yeah. Of thing? Nice. Yeah. What's he like? He was cool. You know, that interview was really funny though, uh, because uh, I was uh, I was atypically nervous, right? Really? So one one reason I was nervous is because it was in the morning. And that, <laughs> yeah. that is not my time, right? Right. And if I want to be like uh, concise and, you know, well-spoken, this is not my time. But also um, it was the morning that Trump's first press conference happened. So we got delayed by an hour. Okay. And so then the other thing is, you know how, uh, like, you see on TV with radio interviews, people have, like, the microphones with the crane arms, right? Mm -hmm. So basically, I walk in, I shake his hand, I sit down, 
I have the microphone with the crane arm, so I'm trying to see through my crane arm. <laughs> and then he has the microphone with the crane arm, so I'm trying to see through his crane arm. So yeah. I'm looking through this tiny window. Uh, also, he's not looking at me. He's looking at his computer monitor, which is where all the notes are about my book. Right. And so, like, uh, it was just very disorienting, you know. And so I did the interview, and then afterwards I was like, that was terrible. But then I listened to it. It was fine. It was just yeah, I was right. feeling like it was terrible, <laughs> you know. People, uh, well, like, I'll get done with this show, and people will be like, I don't know, man. Was that any good? I'm like, you're fine. Just trust me. <laughs> right. It, it's good. It's going to be fine. But uh, so you said unexpected press. Yeah. Why? I mean, because I've done things in the past, man. I've sent out, I mean, musically, I've sent out press releases and stuff like that and like no response. Yeah. You know, but with this, uh, so I guess Westward covered us first. They actually interviewed me while I was in Budapest, which was pretty funny. <laughs> the, yeah. the local newspaper having to talk to you like half a world <laughs> yeah. away. Yeah, I went, like, uh, this is a bit of a diversion, but I went to uh, Europe for, like, a month last year, and I did a whole bunch of comic book stuff. So I went to, like, Berlin, Prague, Budapest, and London. Nice. Went to, like, conventions, comic book stores, that kind of thing. I lost my phone in Berlin, <laughs> dropped my computer in Prague so I couldn't get online. <laughs> so in Budapest, uh, Westward wanted to interview me via Skype at noon here, which is 8 p.m. there. So I had to use one of the computers in the lobby of the... Uh, Hostel, I was staying in. Right. There were only two computers. So I go out an hour early to make sure I get a computer because I need this interview because we're going to do the Kickstarter after, right? Yep. I sit down, and then it turns out they're doing maintenance and their internet is turned off. Oh, Jesus. Yes, yeah, so I was like, oh, man. So I run down the street to another hostel, sneak into their computer area, <laughs> and uh, try to pull up Skype. They don't have Skype. So then I try to install Skype. You are not an admin. Right. right. So then I can't ask the people who work there to install Skype because I'm not staying there. Right. Right. So then I run back to my. So now it's like 7:30 and I'm like sweating. So you're living inside a sitcom. <laughs> really, really. <laughs> and so, yeah. So like uh, at 7:30, I asked the dude who's working. I was like, listen, man. You know, I don't want to rush you, but uh, I have an interview in the states in a half hour. How long do you think before the internet's on? Oh, 10 minutes, my friend. Right. Mm -hmm. So I sit at the computer. 7:30. 7:40. 7.50. Then for some reason, some Russian dudes come out and start playing ukulele and singing. Because <laughs> it's the lobby. It's 8, you know, 7.30. It's a, ho I, it's a hostel. Right. I can't be mad at them, but it's like stressing me out, right? Yeah. So then 8 o'clock comes. 8.10, they get it on, right? Yeah. So on this interview, it's supposed to be me, my artist, my colorist, and the reporter. So I log in. For some reason, the artist isn't there, but the colorist is there, and the reporter is there. And then I can't make the microphone work. <laughs> So he has to ask me questions, and I have to type my responses on a Hungarian keyboard. Oh, Jesus, man. <laughs> so all the letters are switched around and stuff like that. It was so ridiculous. It uh, took like an hour and a half, and I was like, I'm going to sound so stupid in this interview. But it turned out to be a good interview. Okay. Yeah, so good, in fact, that uh, when it was posted, I uh, wrote, you know, the journalist is Kyle Harris. I wrote him a thank you. And uh, he told me that uh, he had never read comics, but the interview made him interested enough in comics that after he talked with me, he went with his son to the library and got like a stack of trade paperback comics and read. And he was like, I'm halfway through them. Wow. Right. I was like, ah, oh, nice, man. That's <laughs> uh, As a corollary to that story, like all the effort I made to get on that interview. When I got back to the States, I asked my artist, I was like, hey, man, why weren't you, uh, why weren't you on the interview? He's like, oh, you know, um, I, I took Darafu the night before and uh, I, just, I just slept through it. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> I was like, you slept through a noon interview, man. All right. That's cool. Uh, and it's funny. Like, a lot of your stuff is at night, and I am so not a night person anymore. Yes. Yeah. 
come hell or high water, these girls are going to be up at 6.30 probably every morning. Yeah, I hear you. <clears throat> and uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm among the morning people now. It's really, <laughs> it's really weird. What do you think it is about your book? First of all, before we get there, can you, for anyone who may be unfamiliar with your work yeah. or with the burning metronome, give us a rundown, give us sort of the elevator pitch of the story and yeah. what it is. Well, uh, the shorthand is that it's basically the Twilight Zone meets the usual suspects. Nice. Yeah. Two things. Yeah, I'm right. way into it. <laughs> and then the elevator pitch is uh, six courageous explorers find themselves trapped in a world where they encounter the strangest creatures they've ever seen. Human beings. Nice. So it's really uh, a way for me to do social commentary. Yeah. You know, but without beating people over the head, right? Sure. So I can look at humanity from the outside. So, yeah, it's kind of like a supernatural murder mystery. The book is 164 pages hardcover. Nice. And uh, we even have, like, guest artist gallery. Like, a lot of local artists contributed pinups to it. And at Comic-Con, it was great, man. Like, seriously, like, people were coming up like... I was looking for this. I heard you on Colorado Public Radio, or I saw you on Nine News. Oh, that happened. Yeah, oh, Nine nice. News. Yeah, right. right. Who interviewed Not, you there? Uh, Erica Tinsley. Okay. Yeah, and she. It was on. Uh, oh, I'm so bad with names. They're so terrible. Next, Kyle Harris. No, no, no Nick, Kyle. Kyle something. Clark. There we go. I interviewed him on this show. Oh, really? Yeah. That's funny because Kyle Harris was the Westward dude. Yeah. And Kyle Clark. Yeah. So he. Did, it, it was one of his producers that interviewed me, and, and they featured it on his show. Okay. So your sitcom is called Too Many Kyles. <laughs> really, right? <laughs> right. The hilarious thing about that, I filmed that that uh, you know on a, whatever day it was, and then I uh, don't have television. I stream things, mm -hmm. so I knocked on my next door neighbor's door, and I was like, "Hey, can I watch this?" You know, and they're like, "Oh yeah, yeah." And so I go in to watch it, and uh, their uh, four-year-old daughter, when it came on, she looked at the TV and she looked at me and she looked at the, and she was like so confused, man. Oh yeah, I'll bet. And I was in the same clothes, you know, because so, it was that same day. So she was like, "What is happening?" And I was like, "I am everywhere." You know, <laughs> you can't stop me, <laughs> right? But uh, yeah, so people had seen me on certain things, so that was really cool. Uh, and then people who hadn't heard of us like came and were interested. Like we talked to people and we sold uh, a decent amount and. uh People really engage with it. It was really, it was a wonderful experience. Like I can't, I can't imagine a better premiere to be honest. And this, I mean, this sounds like the, the the biggest splash you've had with any book that you've created, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. How has that affected you? How has that energized you going forward creatively? Uh, it's been really, uh, I would say, in, encouraging to see people engage with something that I just thought of in my head when I was sitting alone one day, you know, yeah. and, uh, people be excited about it and inspired. It's really cool. And it does, it, it energizes me towards making more, you know, and expanding it. And I'm just really thankful, you know, cause I've been doing creative stuff all my life and I've never had this level of engagement. Yeah. That, that is exciting. It's always weird when that happens too. And I find after it's useful, a lot of times people will tell you how much your work meant to them. Hmm. Because I had people, I wrote uh, like TV reviews for HBO for a while. Okay. On examiner.com, which yeah. was uh, a thing that existed for a while. I remember that. And, uh, you know, you, you make like, I think I made 200 bucks total doing uh, it. But wow. <laughs> people, after I stopped doing them, they're like, oh man, you don't do those reviews anymore. I'm like, well, motherfucker, where were you? <laughs> right. <laughs> like, <laughs> you got to help me out here. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I felt like I was just shouting into the ether. 
And that's tough because, and I think no matter what kind of creative pursuit you're doing, Mm -hmm. you feel like you're doing that for a while. When in reality, maybe more people are doing it, but they like people are just not very effusive with it. So when that happens, that's both rewarding and a little bit disorienting. Yeah. You know, I do. I think uh, that is the trick, especially with internet stuff, right? Is like people mostly respond to things that they hate. Yeah, right. So if they love something, they'll check it out passively and, you know, you don't know. And they'll feel satisfied. They'll be like, that was great. Yeah. I love that. Exactly. Uh, But that is the benefit of conventions and printing something, you know, like, because you go meet the people and you get to see their excitement and they come back to you sometimes. Like uh, when we put out that first issue, this was at AnomalyCon, actually. Uh, A girl bought it. Came back like 20 minutes later. She was like, I need more of this. <laughs> that kind of thing. And I was like, oh, that's really cool. Yeah. You know. That's fucking badass. Right. Yeah. Like that That wouldn't have happened online, you know. Yeah. Do you feel like now that we're in 2017 and comics culture is much more mainstream uh, in terms of voices of people of color, mm-hmm. is there more of that? Uh, is is it still like, are you still underrepresented? Yeah. Well, uh, it's definitely growing, uh, particularly in independent work yeah i think uh marvel is doing some interesting things you know they're making uh specific choices to have like uh well i guess to put forward characters diverse characters but also have the people who are writing them and drawing them be diverse so like with black panther the artist is black and the writer's black with uh the totally awesome hulk right which is an asian american character now amadeus cho the writer and artist are asian you know, that's good. Uh, they're getting women writers to write women characters, stuff like that. And I think DC's doing some interesting stuff, but like, well, like Wonder Woman was the, the biggest movie of the summer, right? Yeah. And you know the the common critique you always heard was, you know, like girls, you know, girls oh, yeah. aren't into that, and it's like, no, they just haven't had someone that they can latch onto. They and, uh, they haven't been represented in a real way, right? And a woman director with that, Patty Jenkins, exactly. You know? Yeah, so, yeah, and uh, independence. <laughs> Like, uh, Kickstarter is a good place to find, like, a lot of, like, projects from people of color, women, LGBTQ, etc. There's a project that's being kickstarted now that is called uh, Blocked, about online dating. Mm. And I know that a lot of comics creators of color and LGBTQ community are contributing uh, stories for that. I think that's on Kickstarter right now. I don't know how long it's for, but either way, it's worth checking out. Right. Something I'm curious about is... When you go to a con and no matter where you go, you hear about diversity, mm-hmm. right? And diversity sort of as its own, as almost like a slogan, mm-hmm. um, is pandering and patronizing, mm-hmm. right? So how do you how do you put together a panel or if you were putting together a panel, yeah. you know, what would your recommendations be for doing something like that where you include a multitude of voices without it being almost like tokenism? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think it's tricky, right? Because, like, all right, if uh, if somebody's arm is broken and it's not set correctly, then it grows back wrong and they have to break it again. Right. right? And so I feel like uh, there are problems with, oh, let's just say the system, American history, whatever it was that caused the lack of diversity, right? Right. It's broken. It grew back weird. So it kind of <laughs> has to be broken again. So we're going to have, like, these kind of hard things where we have to be intentional. And so it's not natural. But I, I do think some key things are uh, to not necessarily do a panel on diversity, mm. 
uh, that's been cool for the last few years. And, you know, like I think it was necessary. But right. now what's the next step? The next step is do a panel on whatever and just be diverse in the panel. <laughs> right. There right? you go. Because there's so many women comics creators who have told me that they're tired of being on women in comics panels. Yeah. Right. But if you do like badass action hero panel, right. Then, yeah, and you have some women there. Right. Exactly. Right. And people call it like that kind of thing. And so that way, if you're being intentional in that way, then it's not, it doesn't feel so forced. Right. It just reflects the world that we live in. That makes good sense. Right on. And I, I think it's something, you know, as white folks, I think white folks have a hard time recognizing their privilege. Hmm. And that is, I mean, almost taking ownership of that and, yeah. and recognizing that. I think that's not something that a lot of white folks have had to grapple with. Yeah. And when it's called into question, it's like, what are you talking about privilege? <laughs> I've had struggle in my life. It's like. Yeah, what? it's probably, uh, there's a a guy I went to college with that when I was in London last summer, I saw him for the first time in 20 years. He's super Republican, which is whatever is fine. But <laughs> okay. he was like, I think you guys have, uh, you know, the left made a mistake in calling it privilege because hmm. it is a word that provokes people. So people who are like struggling, they're like, okay. I can't pay my bills. Why are you telling me I have privilege? Oh, interesting. Yeah, no, that was an interesting point, you know? Yeah. Because I think it's, it might be bad branding, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> right. Yeah, if if another word was chosen or if it gets to be chosen, I think it might be easier for people to hear. There was a, a, a panel I was on at Denver Comic Con. It was uh, talking about social activism in comics. Mm -hmm. And uh, in that panel, I said uh, that I think all of the isms like classism, ageism, racism, sexism, et cetera, are either a failure or refusal to see, recognize someone else's humanity. Mm -hmm. So you have the people who refuse, who are in the extreme, right? They can see anything and they just, you know, don't give a fuck really. Right. Yeah. And so those are people that I'm not worried about reaching because they've made a decision. Uh, but the right, people they're who, fairly entrenched. Right, right. And, they, and nothing you show them because they don't want to change. Yeah, it doesn't matter. But there are other people who uh, have just not been exposed to something that might might allow them to see the humanity of this other group. Right. And those people are open. And if you can be thoughtful about how you communicate things to them, then you can win them over, you right. know? And uh, that's kind of what, you know, my Republican friend was saying, like with the word privileged, that's something that might provoke the people who might come to your side. Oh, interesting. Which was interesting. Yeah, exactly. And and you keep them at arm's length yeah. rather than inviting them in and being like, Look, here's how your world and my world differ. Okay? Yeah. Make your own value judgments on that. But, I mean, what you're describing is something that I strive to do on this show all the time is just build empathy. Yeah. Like, just get into someone else's world. Let them speak. Yeah. And if, if you go in with more questions than you have statements, mm -hmm. then we're all better off. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think uh, that's what I try to do with the Bernie Metronome. Yeah. That's what I try to do with my podcast. You know, I'm definitely influenced by The Twilight Zone because the thing that makes that show stand out from the other shows that were, like, weird sci-fi stuff mm -hmm. is that there was always social commentary, like, always. Yeah. And I always sort of suspected that Rod Serling was like that, but I recently watched an interview on YouTube. It's the Mike Wallace show. It was, like, 1959. Like, wow. Like, months before he started Twilight Zone, right? And so leading up to that point, he had the... Uh, the reputation of being the angry young man in television <laughs> because he was like censors and advertisers were always trying to stop him from doing social commentary. And then he would just go to the newspaper and be like, they told me I couldn't write about this you know, <laughs> kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. So in this interview, it's incredible. 
So like I said, it's like a few months before Twilight Zone premieres. Mike Wallace is like, so you're doing some kind of fantasy thing now? And he's like, yeah, you know, it's just another storytelling thing. So Mike Wallace is like, well, so you're not doing any more important television? Mm-hmm. And so Rod Serling was like, well, you know, I mean, I feel like it's still important. But uh, if you mean social commentary, no, no, I'm not. You guys won. Mm-hmm. And he's lying through his teeth, right? <laughs> yeah. But he just figured out a way to do it where they, that, where they wouldn't, like, censor him. And it's brilliant. And it's fun watching him, you know, say that. Yeah. Because right? uh, later, after Twilight Zone was established, he, was, he said, uh, I could have Martians say things that uh, Democrats and Republicans couldn't say. Yeah. You know, and if you pull it out of his context where it's not as emotionally charged, a lot of times people can see, they can get the empathy, they can see the humanity in these things. Yeah. You Trojan horse in yeah. your social commentary rather yeah. than, you know, being a frying pan to the face. Right. Uh, yeah. And if you tell an interesting and fun story then there's a lot of room for you to be able to say a lot of cool things. Is that why the burning metronome is, I mean, is that a way for you to address some of the issues of the day? Because we became friends on Facebook mm-hmm. and you're certainly active, yeah. you know, with social commentary in that venue. Mm-hmm. And, and it's much more sort of on the nose yeah. compared to something like a comic book where you have people from another world. Yeah. But I mean, it's, it's almost like two different ways of attacking the same thing. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I mean, it'd be boring to me as a reader. And as a writer, to just be like, this is what I believe about this. <laughs> right. right? <laughs> like, I want an entertaining story, and then the entertaining story can bear the uh, convictions that I have myself. And if it's done well, at the very least, it will raise the question for people to make a decision for themselves. Yeah. It reminds me, what you said reminded me of a line from Futurama. Hmm. When uh, he's like, you can't just have characters declare how they feel. That makes me feel angry. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> but it's so true, right? And yeah. uh, I did a speech at like uh, Metro Metropolitan State University. Yeah. And it was about, uh, it was called Voices. It was about advocacy. And uh, basically what I was saying was that there are two ways, I think, to be an advocate. One is to listen to the people who need to be advocated for who don't have a voice and do your best to convey what they said. Then the other, there was a tweet from uh, a professor with an Arabic name. She was Dr. Something. I forget. I'm sorry. But Mm -hmm. her tweet was, uh, you don't have to be a voice for the voiceless just past the mic. Hmm. And so uh, I love that. Yeah. So so that's the second way, like create an opportunity for them to speak. So like uh, in my comic book, I'm writing hopefully interesting stories that show the perspective of uh, people of color, women, even like white males who struggle in a particular way, right? Right. Just human struggle. That's really what I want to talk about. On my podcast, it focuses on marginalized people in the geek world. So that's me passing the mic. Nice. Yeah, so I got to talk with like a sex worker who makes comic books, and she talked about how she got into both. Wow. Yeah, like disabled geeks, black women geeks, like just a lot of stuff, like LGBTQ comic creators. And that is... uh, create that's like what you're doing here it's like creating a place where people can tell their story right and so those to me are the two ways to be a good advocate well and i love nothing more than i you got to keep them guessing Mm -hmm. you know like it's hard with this show because i don't know if if you struggle with this with your show it sounds like you have a pretty well-defined voice with it Mm -hmm. but my thing is every show is so different from the other yeah that it's hard to brand properly Mm. because it's like well, if you like this show with this comics creator, yeah. you're going to like this guy who started his own ad agency. It's <laughs> like, mm, 
and you're going to like this one with this finance worker and this one with this, you know, hairdresser. (laughs) And it's like, well, (laughs) and so I, I realized I had a hard time with it because we were talking before we turned the mics on about charisma, Mm -hmm. right? And almost like taking the stage. Yeah. And as someone who started this show to highlight my guests. Yeah. I realized somewhere down the line that people are trusting me. Yeah. You're the unifying theme. Exactly. Yeah. I'm like the red thread that runs through every single one of these episodes. And so I almost have to be like the trusted guide, which means I have to embrace the fact that like I'm front and center much more than I ever wanted to be. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely relate to that. I'll bet you do. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Because if I had to guess, this is something I like to ask. So I'm not going to guess yet. But if you were to sort of script a perfect day for yourself work-wise, hmm. what would you be doing probably? Oh, well, I mean, if I could just have wishes, I would sleep well. You sure? <laughs> Get You're up right. at eight, <laughs> maybe earlier, work out for a little while. There you go. And then, and then write. Yeah. That would, that would be it. Like, uh, oh, and then maybe dance in the night. You know, I like dancing. There you go. Yeah. But... I was good because here was my guess. Okay. I was going to guess that it was going to be writing. Yeah. For folks who are creatives, there is so much that you have to do that is unrelated to the thing that you love doing most. Yeah. And so for me, I mean, my ideal day is often spent writing or interviewing people. Mm-hmm. Like this part of the show is my favorite part of the show. Yeah. Um, everything else, the editing, the promotion, the booking, yeah. er, like. There's a lot that goes into me getting the time to do this. Yeah. And it's hard, particularly with people who are creatively driven, because almost everyone I talk to, I talk to a guy who edits movie trailers, and mm-hmm. he's like a film editor. Okay. He's like, I could spend the whole day in my edit bay. Yeah. Just sort of by myself, like cutting and, and putting it together. Mm-hmm. Most people, I think, would tell you that that is where they're happiest. But that is, to whatever extent, a smaller portion of your day than you might like. But if you're lucky, uh, it is, it is the thing that sort of dominates what you do. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the other part of, uh, people dreaming of a creative life is thinking that 90% of your time is going to be creative stuff when really it's like 30 or 40% of your time. <laughs> yeah. Cause yeah. you have to do the work to allow you to be able to do the creative stuff. Right. You know? And I mean, maybe you get bigger. Like I was on, I was a guest on the risk podcast oh, nice. with it. Yeah, yeah. I've heard of it. Okay. Like that guy, Kevin Ellison, Allison, he was really nice, but he's at the point where it's big enough. He gets like 2 million downloads per episode. Jesus. Yeah. It's big enough that he travels from city to city, does shows. He has people who email you before, go through your story with you, huh. um, like help you develop it and somebody else who edits it, you know? And so that would like, be nice. Right. Right. So, I mean, he, but he did the work, like he did it by himself oh, yeah. and it got big and he got to that point, you know? And yeah. I mean, he still has to sort of pay the price in that he's on the plane all the time and right. having to be like a personality, even when he doesn't feel like it. Because <laughs> backstage, he was super like laid back, you know, like he wasn't rude or anything. He was just laid back. But then when he gets on stage, it's definitely like, hey, guys, like a super, you know, he has to be on. <laughs> yeah. And that's what they expect and that's what they need. And that's him doing his job. Right. Yeah. But like, yeah, I mean, I think very few of us ever get to that point as an artist. Mm-hmm. And if you do, then you enjoy it. But if you don't, then the way that you are able to be an artist who makes a living is by doing all that shit that you don't want to do. Ditch digging. Right. Exactly. I mean, yeah, that's essentially what it comes down to. 
Well, unfortunately, we got to wrap up, and we didn't even get to talk that much about Motherfucker in a Cape, <laughs> which, uh, which well, it's sucks. on iTunes and Stitcher. Okay, I think it's called Apple Podcasts now. Oh, okay. which which is annoying. I like That's pretty funny. Yeah, they moved the podcast from iTunes to Apple Podcasts. Oh, okay. which I think sounds worse. <laughs> Well, yeah, but you can search the name. You type in Mother F and it usually comes up. <laughs> okay. My mother didn't love the name of it, but she got over it eventually. She'll survive. <laughs> right. And then uh, I guess my comic is at theburningmetronome.com. So yeah. Check it out there. And uh, we talked about Kickstarter. You did that back in October. Yeah. Surpassed. Yeah, we tried to raise 8400 We raised 14000 That's so awesome. It was so surprising. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like just uh, a train of surprises coming up with the Burning Metronome. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's been wonderful. And it's only, I mean... I only met my co-collaborator like a year and a half ago. Wow. You know, and we already have like a hardcover book. So yeah. Would would uh, your colorist get pissed off if I called them an inker? <laughs> or a tracer, rather? <laughs> well, so uh, the guy who didn't show up for the interview, he does pencils and inks. Okay. So he traced his own work. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he's not just a tracer. Yeah, but the colorist did uh, colors and letters and the design for the book. And that dude used to design the Olympic ski team's uniforms Jeez. for like the last nine years. So he's serious business. And he did some backup. His name is Matt Strackbine. He's really like my partner and the artist we hired. But uh, he's done some backups in Hellboy and BPRD, like short stories wow. and stuff like that. Yeah, so That's a legit dude. Right. Oh, yeah. I should mention, if you're searching for me, if you Google, you have to say R. Allen Brooks. Right. Because Allen Brooks is such a common name. <laughs> I got like a Google alert about an Allen Brooks in Atlanta who was a sheriff who got killed like a week ago. Oh, no. Yeah. And I was like, uh, not me, yeah. thankfully. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. Uh, I will link to all your stuff on the commanding blog piece, johnofalltrades.us. Alan, man, this was a pleasure. Yeah, and, likewise. And uh, continued success to you, my man. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. You bet. Bye. That'll do it for episode 140 of the John of All Trades podcast. Big thanks to Alan Brooks for sitting down with me, sharing his insight, and just being a great dude. You know, I want nothing but success for him. He is just a tremendous talent, incredibly well-spoken, can converse with you on any subject, and has great insight all along the way. So hit up Alan on the John of All Trades companion blog piece, J-O-N of All Trades.us. We're on the social media, Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Pinterest, all at the same handle, J-O-H. Pod. Facebook is the only place where you can get exclusive episode previews. Those go up on Mondays. New episodes drop on Wednesdays. Pay some love to our sponsor, 4Degrees, the number 4, D-E-G-R-E dot E-S. They handle all my hosting, all my website building, and they will build you a campaign. No matter what your product or your service is, they will put it in front of the people who need to see it most and do it at a cost that's very reasonable, very attractive, and incredibly professional. So, the number 4, D-E-G-R-E. The John of All Trades podcast is a production of Deft Communications, D-E-F-T-C-O-M.us. Check us out on the web. We offer an array of services that I think you'll like. We'll be back here very soon with a brand new episode. So until I hear you then, say goodnight, Gracie. That's good, Johnny.